All right, so rolling? Yep. Thank you. Well, Peter, thanks for giving us such a clear, popular summary of your arguments. Now we've got a little bit more time to look at them in a bit more detail. The first major point mm. I think, understand, he was trying to make is the mind is more than physical, right? Right. And you have a bunch of arguments that contribute to that. Mm. The first one being um, that some of the common sense arguments. Why is a thought true, for example? Yeah. Uh, well, what is it for a thought to be true or false? Um, this is a key property of thoughts. Uh, and to think that materialism as a theory is true, you have to admit that thoughts could have the property of being true or, or not true, being false. Um, but what sort of material property or material relationship is being true or being false? Um, to talk about one bit of matter being true and a different bit of matter being false uh, about something um, just seems nonsensical, really. What can you point to that, that makes that distinction on a material level? So materialism itself undercuts itself at that point, you'd argue? I think there's a whole host of ways in which materialism sort of undercuts and ends up uh, contradicting itself, yeah. You also raise the issue of why we can trust our rationality, mm. our thoughts. Mm. Can you unpack that for us a bit? Well, we uh, used uh, sort of a, a popular analogy in, in, the, in the main video about seeing this uh, sign uh, made out of rocks and thinking, uh, could you trust that sign made out of rocks to be telling you the truth about reality if you also held the belief um, that uh, the process by which that sign came about was completely mind-free, was only involving naturalistic processes. And it would seem that um, those two thoughts uh, are incompatible uh, with one another. And various uh, thinkers uh, from the days of C.S. Lewis in his book Miracles to uh, Alvin Plantinga, a philosopher, uh, philosopher of religion from America today, have uh, put this kind of argument in a number of, of different ways. Um, Plantinga, for example, talks about the ways in which if you try to explain our, our, the functioning of our minds in terms of an evolutionary process that is purely naturalistic, um, then the problem here is that um, natural selection, uh, if it, in inverted commas, cares about anything, cares about what works, uh, what works to get your body parts in the right place at the right time for survival value. Um, it doesn't care per se about what's true. Uh, and we know from our everyday lives that you know lies can be very successful. Uh, and so it's inherently uh, an explanation of mind uh, that, uh, as the philosopher of mind Patricia Churchland, who herself is a materialist, says, um, in the process of evolution, truth, she says, takes the hindmost. Um, but if you're explaining mind in terms of a process where truth takes the hindmost, how can you trust that process to have given you the truth about how mind came about through a naturalistic process? It seems to undercut the very ground uh, that that kind of explanation is standing on. Yeah, right. And Lewis argues it in... Um, in Miracles, Miracles. Uh, in a chapter called The Cardinal Difficulty of Naturalism. Right. Yeah, yeah. If people want to go and look that up, mm. that's, uh, that's where it is. Okay, why is there a correlation between our mental events and physical events mm. out there? Well, there clearly is uh, correlations uh, between uh, physical events in the brain uh, and mental events in our consciousness. And um, through modern science, we're discovering more and more what those correlations are. Uh, with which bits of the brain, as it were. Um, 
But correlation does not prove identity. And people far too often slip from saying, you know, modern science shows that uh, you need your brain to be doing this when you're having this conscious thought, therefore they're the same thing. But that, that just doesn't follow. Um, okay, the two go together. Uh, maybe your mental event in some sense depends, uh, perhaps contingently, upon those physical events being the way they are. There's clearly, uh, I would say, an interaction between mind and brain. Um, but interaction between two things is not at all the same as saying they're one and the same thing. Uh, you can say they're, they're two different things that are interacting one with another. You, you also talk about a leap. You know, why does this carpet look green? Hmm. And you can start with the scientific explanation. Right. Can you, can yeah, you so, I mean, at a neurophysiological level, we can all agree that, you know, certain uh, light part, uh, is getting refracted by the material of the carpet. Uh, certain wavelengths of light are stimulating certain chemical reactions in my eyeball, uh, which are then sending electrical signals to my brain, and bits of my brain are having electrical chemical activity happening in them. And then I experience seeing the colour green, say. Uh, and that seems like a leap into a sort of different category uh, of description. And leading uh, materialist philosophers of minds readily admit this and, and say we have no understanding how you go from uh, material electrical chemical activity uh, in our brains to the experience, the, the qualia, as philosophers call it, of seeing green or, or feeling the smoothness of a surface or the roughness of a surface. These, these phenomenological experiences of the world that make up our consciousness just seem an entirely different sort of thing uh, than uh, any uh, physical uh, description of reality. Right, so, so why is that constantly reliable? Why is it, when we all look at that, except for the colourblind, um, we see, uh, you know, why, why is this phenomenon constantly reliable? Yeah, so why, why do these correlations, if it's a correlation between two different kinds of thing, what explains the correlation? Uh, why does grass always look green to me if, I, if my faculties are functioning properly? Why does it look uh, green today as well as yesterday, rather than looking a different colour? to me today? Why is there this reliability of the correlations? Uh, now, if something more than material is involved, simply invoking physical explanations doesn't seem to do enough to explain that correlation, um, because we're, we're talking about the correlation of something non-physical, my experience, with the physical. And it seems that the, the best kind of explanation to bring in there would be a non-physical explanation. Uh, and um, various philosophers have talked about, the, from John Locke onward, have talked about the way in which if there's an omnipotent deity, uh, who is the, the fundamental reality of mind with omnipotence, uh, that mind could explain uh, the correlations between our finite uh, immaterial conscious experiences and the physical uh, triggers of those experiences. Mm. You mentioned qualia before. Mm. Can you just... Um Briefly define what that is and why it matters in this discussion. So qualia or phenomenology, there's kind of interchangeable terms, are just um, the felt experience of anything. Uh, so seeing a colour, hearing a sound, feeling uh, a texture, um, these uh, first-person experiences that we have of the world, uh, as opposed to the kind of uh, purely physical third-person descriptions that you have of reality. 
And that in itself brings up one of those things that seem to indicate the difference between mind and matter. Uh, matter uh, is the kind of thing that is equally accessible to everyone in a third-person point of view, in a third-person description. Um, but we all know through introspection that we have first-person experiences of the world that uh, are inaccessible uh, to anyone else and are not accessible from a third-person point of view. Uh, and that means, I think, that there's got to be something more uh, to the first-person viewpoint than uh, is contained within the third-person physical descriptions of reality. Right, right. Of course, science runs on the third-person observation, doesn't it? Right. But it's the third-person observations of individuals who are all having a first-person personal experience of that third-person reality. So actually, the fundamental experience we have of reality is first-person. And from that experience, we then go on to talk about the third-person reality. And, you know, there are philosophies of the world which would hold that that third-person reality is an illusion. So you can talk about, you know, pantheistic worldviews versus worldviews that say no matter really does exist in a mind-independent way. And you can have that discussion, and we have it on the basis of, of already securely knowing that we have this first-person understanding of the world. So it's not that we start with matter as an obvious reality uh, and then come to have these highfalutin philosophical conversations about, you know, does the first-person viewpoint really exist or not? You know, is materialism or some kind of dualism true? It's actually really the, the, almost the other way around. We start from the first person. That should be the, the obvious thing that we, we admit. And then we can go on to have conversations about uh, the, the mind-independent reality of the material world or whether or not it's an illusion. Right. So, so there may be some parts of, some things in the universe, i.e. our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences, that science can't describe. Right, um, um, we, we, we know that, I, I think. Um, we gave the example uh, in the film, perhaps, of um, imagining something in your imagination, a, p a pink elephant, I think we used, and, and saying, however much you cut open or brain scan what's going on in your brain, you won't find the pink elephant the pink elephant is not in my brain, but is in my conscious imagination. I can see, I have the qualia of the pinkness, of the shape, etc. Um, so there's something that's true about my conscious experience, that it contains the qualia of pinkness of that elephant, that is not true of any of the matter that's in my brain. Now, if, if according to something called Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of identicals, big long fancy term, it means this. If two things are actually one and the same thing, then there can't be anything that's true of one that isn't also true of the other. So if you can find something that's true about some, one thing that's not true of something else, then that proves that they're not one and the same thing. Okay. So here's something that's true about my consciousness, that there's the qualia pink, being experienced in it, that's not true about the physical matter of my brain and body. So they can't be the same thing. Nice. Cool. And uh, the other thing we did mention briefly in the full, uh, full film was the continuation of personal identity across mm. time, didn't we? Um, that you're, um, you're still the same person you were even when all your cells have changed. 
Yes, yeah, and we, 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 we will talk about the way in which, you know, oh, I'm a different person now, I've undergone this experience or that experience, or whatever. But we don't mean that literally, <laughs> you know, um, because if we did mean that literally, we would never celebrate our birthday on a yearly, regular basis, uh, saying, you know, I am now 40 years old or whatever. So what, what is that I that is now 40 years old? That, that indicates an understanding that we are individuals uh, who exist over time uh, and are the same individual that exists over time. But um, it's not the same matter in my body existing over time. See? Uh, now, of course, there is, there is a continuity there uh, of causation, of form, and so on. Um, but is that, an, is that sort of material continuity enough to ground personal identity and responsibility and so on over time? It's a bit like um, the example we used of the, the broom, where you've changed the handle several times and you've changed the brush several times. Uh, does it really make sense to say that that is now the same broom that you had originally bought. Um, all the matter in it is different. Uh, there is a sort of continuity there, because you, know, you, you change the handle first and then you change the broom, uh, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but I don't think that's enough uh, to say, you know, that really is literally the same broom that I had bought all those years back there. And, and likewise, I don't think that the, the material explanations of continuity you can give are enough to ground a, a, a literal sense of personal identity and responsibility over time. Right. Yeah, thanks. You, you also made the point that um, there seems to be a sense of I, a sense of self, mm. even though the brain is incredibly... Um, uh, uh, has all different areas and, and um, how many billion cells doing, and areas doing different mm. things. Mm. Yeah, uh, our minds and our conscious experience pull together all of that information uh, we experience multiple senses at, at the same time from the same personal um, perspective, as it were. We have this individual first-person perspective on these things that are going on in a distributed way in our, in our brains. And I, I understand from those who know the, the ins and outs of, of what the brain is doing that it's not as if there is some sort of central sort of unit of the brain that all of the information from different senses and so on is all sort of going into which is coordinating uh, an experience uh, and even if you thought there were that would be a, a spatially distributed chunk of matter uh, and yet my individual personal experience of the world doesn't seem to be sort of spread out uh, over space like that it, again on a sort of prima facie view um, personal experience unifying uh, my understanding of the world through my bodily senses um, doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that is going on in your brain. Right, right. That's, um, that's mind-blowing. So you can be sitting here thinking about 20 different things in a way. Your brain's running, you're breathing, whether you're conscious of that at the moment or not. It's, um, and if there's a whole subconscious thing going on, there's incredible... Yeah, sure. This is, this is back to the in, what's the interaction between mind and brain. So, so one um, good example, I think, is, is memory. Mm -hmm. Clearly, our, 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 our brains store memories for us, um, a bit like sort of downloading them onto a, a hard drive or a computer tape or back in the old day or whatever. Um, but it's not as if there are little memories going on in bits of our brain um, 
and, and then we access those memories. It's rather that the, the information for those memories is stored in the brain, and then somehow our, our conscious minds are able to pull upon that information to reconstruct and, and replay a memory in conscious experience, as it were. And it's a bit like the difference between having um, a Mozart concerto on a CD. The CD is encoding the information for reproducing that Mozart concerto, um, but it's not reproducing it whilst it's there. You've got to put it into the CD player, which then can access that information and recreate the sound of the Mozart concerto. It's like our minds are the things that can recreate the, the qualia, the experience of, of the memory, although our brain is the thing that can store the information uh, that it draws upon. So if you damage bits of my brain, I will lose memories. Um, but to access those memories, I think you need more than the brain can account for. Uh, you need the ability to have the, the quality, the experience, reliving the experience of that memory. And so that seems to me to be a clear area where there's a relationship between the mind and the body, and you need both working together in order to have a memory of something. Yeah, wow. Whew, that's staggeringly complex, isn't it? Even to think about. <laughs> so... Okay, so let's say you've, you've argued convincingly for um, the, there being a difference between the mind and the physical world mm. or the physical self. Um, there are some counter-arguments, aren't there? I mean, and if just, sure. there's a bit, million. Let's just try a few. First of all, I believe um, Daniel Dennett would say, yeah, um, qualia, what's that really? You know, it's a fluffy philosophical term. I'm not sure he's... Well, he's... Yeah, uh, and he said to me once in an interview, mm. oh, you know, it's this and this. Well, no, I don't know. Mm. What, what, is, what is qualia? Mm. Um, how would you respond to that? So there are, there are certain philosophers of mind who are what's called eliminatives. And they, they, because of their belief in a naturalistic worldview, and therefore the knock-on idea that mind must be nothing but matter, they will say that um, uh, qualia would seem to be something that doesn't fit into that picture that we experience. But since materialism is true, therefore we can't be having qualia. You just think you're having qualia. That isn't really. We eliminate that from our picture of the world. Um, but how on earth can I be uh, duped into thinking that I'm experiencing something when I'm not having any experience at all, literally speaking? Um, even to be um, fooled into thinking of having experience is itself an experience. Of, 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 <laughs> you know? um, so this attempt to sort of eliminate qualia, conscious experience from reality, is just literally flying in the face of reality. Uh, and if that's the, the price you have to pay, as it were, to be a, a, a thoroughgoing a philosophical materialist, then I say the price tag for philosophical materialism is far too high. <laughs> it's just obviously wrong. <laughs> I think, is it Alex Rosenberg in his book, um, The Atheist's Guide, Atheist Guide to Reality? Doesn't yeah. he say you're, you, you don't really have those experiences? Right, well, Alex Rosenberg, uh, I think, does a fantastic job in his book, Atheist's Guide to Reality, uh, giving the argument that material things have no intrinsic meaning or aboutness. Uh, intentionality to them does a very good job at arguing that uh, and then he also does a very good job at arguing that we know from from uh, introspection 
of our conscious experience that it is undeniable that we are having thoughts about things. Okay. So it's undeniable that I'm thinking thoughts about things. It's not possible for purely material things to be about anything. Now, what follows from those two premises is the conclusion that therefore there's more to my thinking about things than can be explained in purely material terms. But no, what Rosenberg does, because he's really committed to materialism, is he says, so the job here to, to, that we need to do is to explain away the illusion that we're having thoughts about things. Even though he admits elsewhere in the very same book that it is undeniable that we're having thoughts about things. Uh, so he goes back uh, and contradicts uh, himself uh, because of his commitment uh, to materialism. Yeah, material, it's interesting, isn't it? And he also says, I think, um, if you're feeling down, well, all you are is chemistry, so just get some better chemistry into your brain. You know, yeah. Drug on. Yeah. <laughs> In a sense, if, if that's all you are, yeah. uh, that's perhaps a logical, <laughs> logical extension of that. Okay, I, I think the other thing Dennett's going to say is, mm. he said to me in an interview, it's just molecular machinery chugging back and forth. That's all that's going on in, in your head. If you get an army yeah. of little robot cells, enough of them, they'll produce consciousness. Right, well, this seems to me to fly in the face of um, John Searle's Chinese room experiment, uh, thought experiment, um, which is basically an, an argument for saying, look, however many material things that don't have an understanding of reality you put together, that's not going to buy you an understanding of reality. It's like trying to get blood from a stone, or thinking you really can get blood from stone if only you put enough stones together. You see, that really doesn't uh, cut the mustard, does it? And so John Searle has this fascinating thought experiment about the, the, called the Chinese room, uh, where um, you put someone who doesn't understand the Chinese language uh, together with a rule book that says, you know, if you get given this symbol, this line of symbols, then give out this line of symbols. So you've got a sort of rule book to follow, uh, and people hand this person strings of Chinese symbols, and he looks up in the book what to do, and hands them back from a bucket of Chinese symbols, a string of Chinese symbols. Now, the, the book is so fantastic, this might take a long time, <laughs> but the book's so fantastic that uh, he would pass the Turing test. It, it seems to people who give him uh, these uh, written questions in Chinese and receive these answers um, that he must understand Chinese because he's giving them the right answer. Um, but all that's going on there is a computational system, says John Searle, where you've got a, a whole bunch of things, none of which understand Chinese, which manage to imitate an understanding of Chinese uh, by being such a, a clever system, but clearly there is no understanding of Chinese there. The rule book doesn't understand Chinese, the symbols don't understand Chinese, the person who's following the rules to manipulate the symbols doesn't understand Chinese. Okay, so uh, just the fact that you can follow a set of, of, of rules algorithmically uh, but using things that don't understand Chinese, although you can imitate understanding Chinese, that doesn't buy you the actual conscious understanding of Chinese that a native Chinese speaker has. Uh, they're clearly different things. And therefore, um, machines are just doing that. They're just following algorithms, manipulating symbols, handing right. out buckets of twos and fours and fives and whatever. Yeah. My calculator is, it's not actually thinking or getting what two no. means. No, no more than the fact that a, that, that a book 
uh, can contain uh, sentences that are true in it means that a book understands the truth of those sentences. Okay, there's there's a difference uh, because the symbols in the book that are the letters that could be written in different matter, in different languages, uh, that could be uh, put into a computer so that you can, you can search for the information on it using algorithmic uh, search engine terms and things. None of that uh, system of things that don't have an inherent understanding or meaning can suddenly magically buy you understanding and meaning. That has to come from a mind. And so you can't use uh, books or, or computers as a counter-argument to a dualistic understanding of mind uh, without actually just begging the question and assuming that the minds that write the books or create the computers are themselves nothing but matter. But that's the very point at issue. Right. Okay. So, okay. so let's imagine that you've made the point that there is more to the mind than just physical, mm. or that the mind is in, even in a different category from the mm. physical sciences and what they can analyse. Um, so what? Mm. Well, for example, I think it gives us an understanding of how human beings uh, could, and I think do, have libertarian free will, the kind of free will that gives us moral responsibility. I think uh, a materialistic understanding of what people are inevitably leads to a sort of deterministic understanding of people that robs us of the sort of free will you need for moral responsibility. Um, it would be uh, as if um, you were walking along a beach one day and a pebble sailed through the air and hit you on the head. Okay. Um, well, could you hold the pebble morally responsible for hurting you? Okay. It's just, say it was teetering on the edge of a cliff top having been unearthed by years of soil erosion and wind and rain and so on, and then a particularly big gust of wind just happened to come along at the right moment, and gravity takes hold of it, and by the laws of Newton's uh, laws of motion, it describes a parabola through the air that just happens by chance to coincide with your head. Okay? And you, you know that that's what has caused you this pain in the head. Well, you know that it makes no sense to blame the rock or gravity, or soil erosion for hurting you. And yet, if you looked up to the top of the cliff, having been hit on the head with a pebble, and you saw me at the top of the cliff with a pile of pebbles in one hand, taking aim with another one, <laughs> uh, that it does make sense to point at me and blame me and hold me morally responsible for, for hurting you. But the direct implication of that thought is that there must be something more to me, something above and beyond the physics of what's going on in my body. Because it's just a more complicated physical system than the initial uh, example. Uh, and that rising complexity, again, doesn't suddenly buy you moral responsibility. I'm, if I'm just a whole set of physical things behaving according to the laws of physics, I don't get a choice about whether I threw the stone at you or not, any more than the stone had a choice about whether to fall or not once gravity's taken hold of it, you see. Um, so holding people morally responsible means thinking that they're more than a deterministic system, which means thinking that they're more than a purely physical system. Uh, so that's one really important uh, difference uh, that holding a dualistic view of people can, can give you. Uh, it can buy you something that will give you the elbow room, if you like, for thinking that people could indeed have free will and moral responsibility. Right. 
I guess it I guess it makes science look at itself too because I've heard a lot of scientists in different words say that science explains or will explain everything there is, everything there mm. could be, everything, you know, scientism. Yeah. Fundamentalist scientism in a yeah. sense. Well already you've got a problem because that statement itself right. cannot be proved by science. Um, but if mind can't be described by the physical sciences mm. then that that begins to crack that view. Absolutely, yeah. You, you start, as I say, you start from the first-person viewpoint. That's, that's what we know is real. <laughs> then you move on to discussing um, science. You know? and, I, and I'm very happy to say with science that the, the physical world is a real mind-independent reality that science gives us a progressively closer understanding of. Um, but you do have to realise that that is a, a philosophical position uh, that doesn't immediately flow out of our first-person conscious experience of the world, because there are philosophies uh, of the world that would deny the real mind-independent reality of the physical world, um, whilst agreeing that we all have the same conscious first-person experience of reality. Um, so um, science, as understood uh, in the, the Western tradition, uh, makes an assumption about reality that science itself is incapable of, of proving, i.e. the actual mind-independent existence of the physical world, um, which one might think is, is rather integral to <laughs> the whole kind of scientific project. Just a bit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and I, guess, I guess the other big thing, that the reason why this debate is of interest to people who believe in God especially, sure. is if there is more than just the physical mm, world, mm. then that fits best with the view of origins yeah. We've got it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, once you've accepted that there is one thing that is real and that is supernatural beyond the materialistic, naturalistic world, it of course puts on the table the question, well, are there other things in that category as well? Um, it's certainly possible that there be things in that category once you've admitted that there is one thing that's in that category. And that makes it possible to think, well, maybe there are, there are other things in that category, like like God, for example. And certainly, um, given that mind is more than matter, uh, matter seems to be a very insufficient explanation for the existence of mind and for the, the qualities uh, that we know that mind has, such as the ability of mind to have thoughts that are true or false about things, that, that follow uh, an argument to its conclusion because we see that that conclusion follows from the logical grounds that it's based upon rather than uh, our thoughts just being the deterministic out outcome of a, a set of cause and effect that would make us believe what we do regardless of whether it's logical or, or not, you know, uh, and so on. So there's a whole host uh, of things uh, that are apparently true of mind uh, that just can't be reduced to the materialistic box. They bust the bounds of the materialistic worldview. Um, but they don't bust the bounds of a mind-first theistic worldview. Uh, and indeed, clearly, if there is a, a God, uh, as uh, the classical tradition of Judeo-Christian thought uh, conceives him, uh, a God who is omnipotent, that means he can... Uh, do anything that's logically possible and consistent with his other qualities, like his moral qualities and so on, uh, well, then it would certainly seem possible that that God, should he choose to, could create finite minds, uh, finite minds in his image um, that are designed to be embodied um, like we human beings are. So that 
understanding of what a person is makes, makes very natural sense within a supernaturalistic theistic worldview uh, in a way that it just doesn't make sense within a materialistic worldview. Great, so that's really, in a sense, the, the big payoff for you as, as a philosopher of religion, particularly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the causality thing, if my mind is immaterial, would matter without any mind in it cause it, or could it even, even do that? Whereas mm. an immaterial mind, and if that's the fundamental reality, i.e. mind of God, as you said in our previous interview, um, it's not surprising that minds would be, would be non-material. Right. Um. I don't think I, I can um, phrase that any better than. <laughs> it's, so, so, so. Oh, thank you. So, so the the issue then is. I mean, if if the materialist no, if the um, well, how would we put it the the um, the physical view of physical only view of mind is true. There still mm. could be a god somewhere. <clears throat> but it's less like. But it's it's less compatible. Yeah. So. The relationships between the, the understanding of mind-body and the, and the worldviews mm. go like this. Um, if materialism as a worldview is true, then physicalism about what a mind is, that the mind is nothing more than, than material, has to be true. Okay. But if physicalism about the mind is true, then materialism could be true, but it could not be true. Because it would be possible to think that uh, a supernaturalistic worldview is true. To think, say, that there is an immaterial God who created a material cosmos that includes people who are purely material objects. So, of course, it's possible to believe in an immaterial God whilst thinking that people are purely physical things. But if people are more than purely physical things, if there's something supernatural about people... Uh, then materialism as a worldview must be false, and you have to go looking for an alternative worldview. And a mind-first theistic worldview is certainly one that would make sense of, among many other things, the existence and qualities of our finite minds. And that's a, that's a brilliant summary. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll park it right there. Grand. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>